so I'm excited. Uh, I set my phone here so that I can see the time so I know what time it is when I'm done. Please hear that language. I'll just know what time it is when I'm done. It will not tell me when to be done. Um, that is for the Lord to determine. So we have lots of things to get after. I don't want us to be shortchanged in that. Um, so this uh, teaching, we have been going through the gospel uh, of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, the biography of Jesus according to uh, this uh, young man named Matthew. So we've been walking through that. We're going to continue to do that this morning. Uh, and within this, though, it's kind of fun because this teaching has been in the works for um, at least over a year because, uh, as I'll share in a minute, it was supposed to be one of the teachings, uh, or at least a, a part of it is supposed to be one of the teachings I did in Israel that we didn't actually get to. So instead of that, that group of people that went to Israel a couple months ago, having them experience it, we all get to experience it together. So then, rather than a small group of people being in Israel, we're all going to go to Israel this morning and kind of immerse ourselves in the text, and that will be good. Uh, but before we get there, you all need to be alert to, aware of um, our amazing good friend, Jonathan Acasio from Puerto Rico, from Marazul in Puerto Rico, is here this morning. Um, so uh, I certainly hope that when you hear us speak of our friends Marazul, Jonathan, uh, Puerto Rico, so he, he's uh, the pastor there, and we've got to spend time with him. He sits next to Sawyer because um, Sawyer just need, he just loves Jonathan Hugs. Uh, there is no doubt about that. Uh, so uh, a number of us have had the opportunity to spend time uh, there, and so it's fun to have Jonathan here uh, briefly. So if you want to chat with him at some point, we're going to tell you what, we're going to cook out afterwards um, just so you can have conversation with Jonathan <laughs> and one another. Uh, I'd love to say a word of prayer, and then um, we're going to take some breaths, and we're going to sink in because we have ourselves a journey this morning, and I think a word that is so deeply, desperately needed in our day, in our age, in our society for us. Would you pray? Gracious God, we bless you for this time, this moment, this space to gather, to listen to what you have for us wherever we find ourselves on this faith spectrum, from hand up, holding you, it, at a distance, uh, to arms wide open, embracing and desiring to grow wherever we find ourselves. Skeptics, cynics, and um, folks that are just deeply immersed in you. All of it. We come this morning, we bring all of that, and we desire to just hear, to listen, to be open to what you have for us as individuals, but also collectively as a community. Uh, we desire to hear from you and to grow uh, this morning. Take one step closer and uh, whatever that uh, entails. So, God, as the psalmist said, may the posture, the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you and you alone. 
my Lord, my rock, and my Savior. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, last week, just real quickly, we found ourselves uh, traveling with Jesus to his hometown, as in where he grew up where he spent his childhood growing up in a a town called Nazareth. And as an adult, Jesus had moved away to to a further Galilee region around the lake and made his uh, adult home in Capernaum, which we often call Capernaum. Uh, So he was in Capernaum, but in that time. But then he travels back, almost like a family reunion, class reunion to Nazareth. He goes back home to the people who watched him grow up as a kid. And there then he, he... he says he taught in their synagogue, which would have been kind of his growing up synagogue, and the people took offense at him. They said, there is no way that you, this Jesus that we know, you can't be, they grumbled, and they said, you can't be more. What we learned is they couldn't see past an old perspective of Jesus to see the more that is the Christ in Jesus, And it's not that they didn't believe that there is a God or even a coming Messiah or Savior. They just didn't believe that the Jesus they knew growing up could possibly be that one. So we kind of went there, and that ancient story, though, reveals a still very common issue today, and it's that people had their minds made up for the possibility of divinity, which limited their humanity, When we make our minds up, a God can only look this way, act this way, function this way, be seen in these ways. When we do that, we actually limit our capacity as humans to grow and see and experience more. Are you with me? Okay, that was last week. We just thought we would highlight that a little bit. And I think this is a huge problem because one of God's favorite ways to reveal himself, to show up, to be among us, is through surprise. Surprise. It's one of God's favorite words. It's one of God's favorite actions, surprise. And so we want to be open to that this morning, and that's going to take us uh, in this movement of Matthew. We're going to begin in chapter 14, or what we call chapter 14 of Matthew, verse 13 to 21, and this is going to send us into a fantastic journey uh, in which we dig into the context, and we'll be journeying, we'll pull up some maps and enter ourselves into Israel. Um, but what, what we begin with is Jesus has just learned of, in the text, he's just learned of his cousin, John the baptizer, his cousin's death. And so he leaves to try and find some solitude to mourn and grieve his cousin's death. So in Matthew 14, 13, 14, it says this, when Jesus heard what had happened, that John had been uh, killed, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Uh, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, before we get into this, um, real quickly where we're going to be, we had a day in Israel. I I know we've talked about this a bit. Our group that went to Israel a couple of months ago, 47 of us, uh, there was a day that it was 108 degrees. It got really warm. We were in the galley, which is a good thing, but that day specifically, what we were in the galley, hiking was really walking then. It wasn't too aggressive being where we were. 
uh, but due to the heat, um, and so the heat was one aspect of it, and then uh, a couple, two people, uh, got lost at the Jordan River, shh, um, a little dicey, everything worked out fine, but it set us back and we missed one site that we were going to go to in a couple of teachings. And one of the teachings was in between the sites, and it's where we're going to be today. And it was one that I was supposed to uh, give then, but it's, um, it was saved, is what it was. We just had to put it in the file and say, why don't we do that together, because we're walking through Matthew anyways. So isn't that nice? It's lovely. So we're going to do that. Um, but where this takes place then, there's a village in Israel called Tabga. You do not find it in the scriptures, but what we understand, it's in the Galilee uh, and where we find it. Um, so if we go here, Sea of Galilee, Tabga here, the village, as you can see, you have uh, Mount of Beatitudes here. There's the entrance to Kafar Nahum or Capernaum. You see how close everything is. So we went there. Uh, we we went and spent some time when we were in Israel, our group in Tabga. Now what the plan was is we wanted to spend some time walking in this region here. We were going to uh, hike, walk to the Mount of Beatitudes, have a big teaching at the Mount of Beatitudes, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we didn't get there, uh, but the in-between space is where we're going to sink into this, because this is where it takes place. And uh, next picture, um, just to give you an idea, when we were out on the Sea of Galilee, I took a picture from the boat. This is Tabga over here. Um, this building uh, here is actually called uh, the Church of Loaves and Fishes. And it's because behind it, in that area, I took a picture because I knew at the end of the day, hey, we were supposed to be there. Uh, so I took a picture because we were going to be there and we were going to sink into this story and more there just so we're aware. But we set ourselves in, we're on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. The villages uh, known as um, the Galilee villages that Jesus had been in, but it's in this area that this thing takes place. But now, I want us to go to that beginning text where Jesus got away, went away, to sit in a solitary place. And this is, to me, one of the most profound teachings that Jesus offers us. And it's not spoken so much as what we see. Jesus offering in these words is he's trying to get away to mourn and grieve the loss of his cousin. But the crowds follow him, find him, and how he responds floors me, challenges me. To me, this is one of the most challenging things as it pertains to it, this situation. Uh, our good friend Tom N.T. Wright unpacks this picture really well, and he says this, uh, he, that's Jesus, translates his sorrow over John and perhaps his sorrow for what lay ahead for himself too. He can see his death coming. Uh, into sorrow for them. Before the outward and visible works of power, healing the sick and among them, comes the inward and invisible work of power in which Jesus transforms his own feelings into love for those in need. Wow. That right there is so challenging to me. 
and maybe to us and certainly in our society today when it's so quickly and easily uh, for us to turn and go, my feelings, how I'm feeling, and to get overwhelmed with my feelings, my whatever's going on, and Jesus is like, yep, I have some frustration or I have hurt, I am I'm in sorrow and how he can turn and say, but these, look at all these people that are here instead of, I mean, I know how. I know how I would be doing in that moment. Gosh, I'm really tired and I'm really heartbroken right now and all these people just showed up at my house. <laughs> I went to go get quiet and all of a sudden the lights turn on and people go, surprise, we're here. Got to go to the bathroom. Like, whew, heart check, right? Instead, Jesus was like, ah, you all are hurting too. You all have needs. And he turns that to them. Woo-wee. Now, what's fascinating is as we keep going, we're going to see Jesus' students, the disciples as we call them, pick up on this a little bit. This is this um, gradual uh, slow learning that they do, and I'm grateful because they teach us the slow learning that maybe we do. Um, but they begin uh, learning and they pick up on this. As evening approached, the disciples, here they are, they're following him, they came to him and said, this is a remote place. Because where they are is kind of in the middle of, I mean, we could see in that picture, you're in the middle of towns. You're just kind of in the middle, uh, up on a hillside. Uh, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. They recognize it's getting late, that the location is not somewhere in which people can get food, eat, and be taken care of. So they suggest, let's call it a day, Jesus. Let's send the people home so they can hit the drive-through on the way and get some food, um, is what they're thinking. I would call this beginner's compassion. Beginner's compassion. They, they understand like, hey, these people, it's getting late. There are needs. Um, let's, get, let's send them away. Beginner's compassion. We recognize the need. Let's give them space and time to go take care of that. Why I say it's beginner's compassion, because even the context is going to teach us that, oh boy, that thing, there are limitations to beginner's compassion, because we're going to learn that there were five, about 5,000 men present, which doesn't account for the kids and women, which then uh, scholars would say there's likely 10 to 12,000 people in this space. And so to send them away, you also have to take in the context, in the Galilee, it's um, fair to say that most, a good amount of the people are likely living in pretty uh, extreme poverty. They're simple peasants. So the idea of 10,000 plus people say all at once, hey, maybe you leave and go find food in the surrounding villages and stuff would be overwhelming in many, many different ways. Are you with me? Yeah, see, we can see like, oh, well, this is, could be problematic. Uh, Jesus then replies to the situation, his disciples. He replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. He says, beginner's compassion. Oh, you recognize the need. Well done. Let's up things. And why don't you take care of them, uh, good peoples? Uh, we have, they respond, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. So Jesus turns beginner's compassion into an invitation for his students to go beyond assigning the need to others and meeting the need themselves. Uh, now, uh, this is where last week, if, if you were here, I mentioned that God is not, or at least I don't think God is very good at math. 
which sounds a little odd, but we're going to find that unfold more in this story, uh, that uh, this story shines light on that math, whether God's not really good at math, our math, or math, as we know it, is rarely, if ever, the point of numbers, numericals in the Bible. Numbers are often symbols, pictures, or flashing signs to something much more. Are you with me? Okay. Jesus will now take the little given to him, and he's going to provide for all the people. Brilliant. Amazing. The only, by the way, this miracle is the only miracle that is recorded in all four biographies of Jesus, the four Gospels, the only one that's recorded. Now, it goes like this, 14, uh, 18 to 21, bring them here to me, the, the loaves and fishes, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. Oh, we bless you, God, for what we do have. Ready? And then he broke the loaves. Sacrifice. We're going to do something. We're going to break these things. We're going to do sacrifice in order for people to have the more. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up how many? Twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up twelve basketfuls of leftovers. The number of those who ate, the number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. There you have it. The framing now and the specific language right here, though, is laced with hints and nods to another story from the history of the Hebrew people. The way this story is structured, the language within it. There are hints at something else. That's what they would be picking up on, too, that is way more than the literal mathematics then. The writer Matthew has been up to a much larger point all throughout his biography of Jesus. And in the stories we're going to look at today, he begins to tie some clouds together for the reader-listener. It's wonderful. Uh, now, throughout this biography of Jesus, Matthew has been drawing literary lines from Jesus to the great prophet Moses. From the similarities in their birth narratives to them going up on a mountain to get God's instructions and give God's instructions to people. Matthew is dramatically waving his literary arms to announce Jesus is the new Moses. The numbers which in Jewish consciousness, numbers anyways, are about more than math. It's pointing to how the divine is providing for the needs of the people through Jesus. Similar to the way the divine met the needs of the Israelites way back in their history in the wilderness or desert through Moses. That's what's happening here. So this story is a hyperlink to Exodus 16. So write that one down because there's going to be a reading assignment afterwards in which the Israelites are traveling in the desert. They grumble against Moses and his brother Aaron. We want food. They're, they're in the desert and they're wandering. So the divine covers the ground with some sort of thin flaky thing and the, pe the people inquire, what, what is this substance? And it goes like this. Moses said to them, it is the what? Bread, uh, uh, the Lord has given you to eat. Each one had gathered just as much as they needed. Sound familiar? Oh, they had enough that would 
satisfy them. So they have this wonderful, great, uh, and then the story is capped off with a very key line, uh, verse 35. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of where? This last line is really key to where we're heading. So they ate manna. They're provided for until they get to this other land that borders there. Eventually, the people settle in the land of Canaan, which is referred to as the promised land. There they develop into a nation, Israel, a people made up of 12 tribes. Really important. If you were to continue reading, so here's your reading assignment, through Exodus 20, you would see more links from the story of the 12 tribes of Israel being organized and being prepared to settle in the land to Matthew's story of people being fed by Jesus and the 12 disciples. It's fascinating. You can do that on your own and then send me your notes. It'll be lots of fun. We'll have coffee and talk about it, and you all will just be giddy nerds like me. It'll be so fun. Uh, now, how many loaves of bread did Jesus have? Five. Um, and how many fish? Two. Great. Wonderful. And then that will be enough to satisfy the people. The Torah, the instructions of uh, God for life, life to the full, deemed as good or full, is often referred to as the five books of Moses. Five. And what we call the Ten Commandments were recorded on two stone tablets, not apple, uh, stone tablets. Um, so in Matthew's story, how many basketfuls of bread are left over? Again, 12, which is how many tribes of Israel there are, correct? So on a larger scale, this is a story about the divine through Jesus providing for and being faithful to his promise for the Israelite people. I will I will supply for you. I will provide for you. I will make a way for you. We see this unfolding further here in the story. In the story, there is a larger story of I told you I would take care of you. Are you with me? It's a big deal because we're just getting started. That's the intro. Are you ready now? Sort of kidding. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Uh, leaving that place now, Jesus with, withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Maybe some of you have said that at some point. <laughs> Dear Lord, my daughter is demon-possessed and and I'm suffering terribly because of <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> All right, map. Let's go to a map um, where we can get an idea. So um, if you go, here's the Galilee region where Jesus has been hanging out. There's Kafar and the Hume. We're right in this area. He goes up to Tyre and Sidon, this idea going up there, leaving a Jewish region. Up there now, you are in a Gentile, non-Jewish region. Jesus is going up there. Well, that's interesting. What are you taking the disciples up there? The disciples would be going, we're going, where? We're not allowed to. Mom and dad said we can't go up by those Gentiles. So they're going up there, which is already interesting. And then it says, Matthew says, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus crying. He names her as a Canaanite, the other 
That's what that would be saying. Remember in the history of the Hebrew people, or if you recall, or if you don't know, the Canaanite people were one of the worst enemies in the history of the Hebrew people. The person, there is a person named Canaan. He is a descendant of Noah, Noah's son, Ham. We often say Ham, Ham. Kind of like, okay, never mind. Who was the son? Ham is the one who brought disgrace on the family. We won't get into that story because it, it's, well little PG-13, by acting shamefully toward his father. So Ham, Noah curses Ham's son. He doesn't say, Ham, you're cursed. He said, there's a curse on your son, Canaan. Which takes us to Genesis chapter 10, known as the table of nations. This is fascinating. 10 verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, or Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Those were already, these kids of his, Egypt, Mitzrayim, uh-oh, problem in their, in their history for the Jewish people? Yep. Canaan. Canaan was the father of what? Who? Sidon. Oh, interesting. His firstborn. And of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Samarites, and Hamathites, all kinds of fun. I mean, why, why did we come up with um, Bob, Dave, S Sally, Ruth? I mean, well, Ruth's in, but come on. These are better, right? Why, how many of you thought, no, Ham? Ham Harrison sounds good. Anyways, uh, later the Canaanite clan scattered and the borders of Canaan reached from where? Where did they begin? Sidon. Now, this is just all really important to get the lay of the land, which takes us now to the very uncomfortable but clear instructions given to the Hebrew people on what to do in order to establish themselves in the promised land, which is within the borders of Canaan. So ready? Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into this land, you are entering to possess and drives out. God's going to drive out before you many nations. Oh, these sound familiar? The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Seven nations, circle that, larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Oh, sounds like the Israel people are Cobra Kai. Um, <laughs> this is fascinating that these nations are known as the seven tribes of Canaan. Really important, seven tribes of Canaan which were to be destroyed, so this text says. This is a big deal. Why? Because if this happens, or any semblance of this happens for the most part, then that means around 2,000 years later, when we reach the time of Jesus, it's about 2,000 years later, the Canaanite people do not exist. Well before this, they do not exist as a people. So why does Matthew say a Canaanite woman? By the way, he's the only one that says it. Luke and Mark call her a Syrophoenician woman based on the area. Matthew calls her a Canaanite, and it's the only time in the Gospels, in the New Testament, that this term is used, Canaanite, in the New Testament. What is Matthew up to? 
writing to a Jewish audience, trying to say Jesus is the new Moses, reminding them of their history. Are your dashboards lighting up? Huh, I hope so. Now, Matthew 15, uh, Jesus responds this way, 15 to 23. Jesus did not answer a word. This Canaanite woman comes to Jesus crying, Lord, son of David, which we'll get into, have mercy. My daughter is demon-possessed. Please have mercy. And Jesus did not answer a word. Tension, right? Jesus, what are you doing? This woman's very upset, and you're ignoring her, is what we see. 15, 23 to 24 says, So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The disciples asked Jesus to do what? Get rid of her. Does that sound familiar? What's their history? Get rid of them. Send away, now, but here, in the Greek language, which this is written, send away in the Greek also means, ready, to set free, to loose the bonds of, and then dismiss. They could be actually, hey, Jesus, can you please set her free? Could you please, please release her bonds and send her away? And Jesus says, uh, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Oh, you just feel that tension. So then what happens? Verse 25 and 26. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. It's hard not to read that and get, for me, a little teary-eyed. He replied, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. (laughs) Awkward. Did Jesus, Jesus just refer to her as a dog? Anyone feeling a little bit like this it doesn't feel like a very Jesus-y moment? Now, within the context, some would argue the technical language you could get into associated with the term dog. Uh, Jesus is actually what's happening in that language because dogs to the Jewish people then, a, a typical dog would be more almost like what we would think is a coyote. It's wild, it's just ravenous thing. And then there were little dogs that were more like, oh, it's kind of a pet, but they don't do a whole lot of that even to this day, dog pet stuff. Uh, so Jesus, within the language, is actually leaning into this woman's fierce faith, and he's, he's needling it. He is saying to her, what will you do? How are you going to respond? He's got a bit of a smirk going, how will you respond as I say, you know what, uh, we're supposed to be taking care of the people of Israel. To which she responds this way. Yes, it is, Lord. Even dogs, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She doesn't take offense. She doesn't really care. What she says is, listen, even dogs get fed from the master's table. That's what I'm about here. This woman is fierce and determined, and Jesus listens, pays attention, and honors it. 
her fierceness, her determination, yet sadly many have used this language to disdain such women today. How does Jesus view her? Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have what? Jesus says to her, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, recall a a couple weeks ago, Sarah had pointed out that word great there is the word megos, where you can see where it's going in the Greek, which means loud and spacious. Woman, you have loud and spacious faith. You have this boisterous, buoyant, fierce faith. And that word faith is important because in the Greek it's pistis. uh, And it means this. So pistis is faithfulness, fidelity, trust. You have a megos trust in God. You, this Canaanite woman does. And the root of this means to persuade. It's a fierce action-based trust. We need this more than ever. Trust isn't, is less intellectual. It's more action. It's more heart, guts, movement. And this is what she does. And Jesus sees it and he honors such fierce faith. It's beyond time that the church would follow. Because sadly, a fierce, determined woman in our day gets labeled another name, kind of like a dog. That's trash. And it's so that we would follow Jesus in this and honor that kind of fierce determination. I bless God for a fierce, determined wife that I have. I bless God for a staff that is fierce and determined of Sarah and Jessica and Lisa. I am grateful that they are fierce and determined in their trust of God. What a gift that we would honor that because Jesus does. He's like, he's just winking a smile. Keep coming. Keep coming. Why do we know there's respect there? She says, Lord, son of David. She's a Canaanite, and she says, son of David. This is important. Why? Because contextually, what she would likely be, got to be aware of, there's a pagan god of healing called Eshmoon, whose temple was a mere three miles northwest of where she just came from, Sidon. There is a pagan temple of the god Eshmoon, who is the god of healing, and we find this woman tracking down Jesus and saying, I trust you can heal my daughter which means she gives honor and respect to Jesus over Eshmoon. And he is like, you come to me? And he has this banter and dialogue that can feel uncomfortable, and then he honors her and announces for all, you have a megas faith. Come on. That's respect, that's trust, and it's stunning. Now, in naming her as a Canaanite, Matthew offers us a flashing sign indicating the lowest in social order for the Hebrew people, the other side of the tracks, opposite end of the spectrum, person, and Jesus wrestles with her in conversation, which he seems to do with like, come on, 
A little wink and a smile, bring it on. Then Jesus honors her, revealing to us what it looks like, ready when the wrong person is right. She's the, she's the quote-unquote wrong person. You're Canaanite, and she's right in this situation. And Jesus honors her. Over 2,000 years later, we need this lesson more than ever. How do we honor the wrong person being right? <laughs> uh, we, with, uh, in, in Bible language, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear in this moment. Um, a few years ago, I had coffee with a local pastor uh, who's pretty well known, just had a book published, and we grabbed coffee, and I was peppering him with all kinds of questions of what it means to lead a very diverse community. He was a part of a very diverse and thought community, and I said, what does it look like to... Um, to lead this, to be able to hold the tension because there's got to be lots of disagreement within uh, this, your congregation. How, how do you go about doing that? How do you have all these people together consistently and constantly and share in life when there's very diverse thought? And he goes, oh, let me tell you a story. And he says, I, I lived in uh, Jerusalem for a while. And he said, when I lived in Jerusalem, I had a rabbi instructor one day take me with him to a luncheon. He said, hey, we're going to go to a luncheon. And they gathered together with a bunch of other rabbis in the room. And he said, and as soon as I got there, I sat down and then these rabbis launched in and they started arguing and they started shouting and they started debating and they just really got into it. And he sat there and he said, I started to sweat and it got really intense and they're shouting and yelling and arguing and debating and he's like oh and he sat back and he goes a fight's gonna break out I know it and then all of a sudden they they paused and they go okay let's get lunch and he said they sat down together and they had food and then they got drink out and they began to eat and drink and laugh and play and kind of goof around and he's like what's happening right now what's going on I don't understand this. He was shocked. But for the Jewish people, discussion, argument, debate, it's a part of who they are. It doesn't mean a lack of respect. It means the ultimate respect. Because we can discuss, we can go after that which matters most, and the only way we're going to get there is if we're impassioned and if we're fierce about it. That means we're going to actually get to the deepest depths of what this is. We're going to go after truth. And to get there means, of course, we're going to go after our side and go after what we think, and then you come at it, and I'll learn, and you'll learn, and it'll be great. Even if the volume goes up, there is the utmost respect because we're just trying to simply sharpen and shape one another to truth are you with me it's beautiful it's a beautiful picture which invites us to continue walking out the brilliant movement of scripture and the unfolding life of jesus which is a guide for us to hold ourselves in relationship with others and with one another even in the midst of diverse differing thought Matthew 15, 29, Jesus is leaving there now. So he does um, this Canaanite woman, Tyre, Sidon, now he's going to leave that region, and he went along the Sea of Galilee, then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Does that language sound familiar? Earlier in Matthew, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down and then gives what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, this big teaching. Again, recollection of um, 
of uh, Moses. Now here, though, what we understand is through the other Gospels, different things, where he is is a place uh, either Susita or Gerasa. He's in the land of the Decapolis, the 10 Greek cities, which when we go there, it's not Jewish again. He finds himself in a Greco-Roman territory, non-Jewish people. So map, um, so we're going to go here. So again, here's the Sea of Galilee up here. If you go into this area, I circled it with a red pen because that's what we do. You got Hippos, which is Susita. So that would be Susita, kind of in this region. They think he's, there was somewhere in this region. Next slide. Um, then you have a picture of the Sea of Galilee coming from a, kind of the, and again, does that look like a mountain? No, it's a hillside. Uh, but Matthew calls it a mountain because he wants you to think Moses, Moses, Moses. Hillside looking down, next si uh, slide gives us a little picture of some of the remains of Susita. So you're down, you're up on this hillside, but you're in a region now, not far, just north of here, that's Jewish, but you're not far and you've got Greco-Roman uh, territory. We won't go into the history of that. I did that before. You can uh, look back some other podcasts or something or talk to me later because um, we don't have time this morning. We've got to be done by four. So Matthew 15, 30 to 31, here we go. Great crowds came to him there, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised who? See, this is a clue that this is a non-Jewish people because gonna, we're going to bless and we're going to praise the God of Israel. Wow, look what's happening. This is a, a hyperlink to the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, what's happening in this healing, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. And when he comes, the Messiah, the one who is to come, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will whoo, leap like deer, come on. And though that hurt, I played basketball on Friday, I felt that. And those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, desert, and streams will water the wasteland. So we have the prophet being summoned, being echoed within what's happening here. The prophet is proclaiming how the Hebrew people will be brought out of exile, how there will be restoration and renewal. The people will be delivered out of the wilderness, the desert, and brought safely into their forever home. And now we see it happening. But this story Matthew is telling is found in the outsider territory, the enemy, the other so what is Matthew up to in writing this? But what is Jesus up to in doing this? 15, 32 to 33. Everyone good? We're, we're with it? We're on it? Good. We got some taking notes. Find them afterwards. They'll fill you in. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have what? Wow. For these people, they have already been with me how many days? Oh, that's interesting. Three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered him, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Hold on, wait, uh-oh. This is where you kind of get uncomfortable. You're like, Matthew, you already told this story. We just read this, right? 
He already, so then you start wondering, Matthew, did you forget you already told this story? There's people who are hungry. There's not enough here. Uh, send them away. No, don't do that. Did, did someone goof up here in the editorial process or is something else going on? I find that funny. Uh, but this is a different story, different story revealing a massive movement and once again showing how divine math is different than our math. First, Jesus says these people have been winnowed three days, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, blinking dashboard. Then after three days, he will provide bread that will satisfy for life to the full. <laughs> I hope the lights on your dashboard are blinking. Uh, verse 34 to 39, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. And a few small fish. Now we're not going to number the fish because that clearly doesn't matter here. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Oh, that sounds familiar. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks again, bless you God for this, he broke them, we're going to do sacrifice, and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. It sounds really familiar, does it not? Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were how many? 4,000 men besides women and children. Excuse me, after children had sent the crowd, Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Jesus provides bread for life to another large number of people, and once again they ate to satisfaction. How many loaves of bread? Seven. How many basketfuls left over? How many people approximately? Men? 4,000. Contextually flowing out of the story of the Canaanite woman, the other, the look down on, the, the out there, and given grace to her, we have this fascinating story, a picture by way of numbers of good news reaching to the four corners of the earth. That's how they viewed it then. Four corners of the earth for the purpose of revealing the restoration and renewal of all things. And how many tribes of Canaan are there? Seven. The number seven also represents completion. So the divine is now provided for the far reaches, even the enemy, through Jesus, offering restoration for all. This is a picture of Jesus reconciling to himself rather than destroying the seven tribes of Canaan. Deep breath. Oh, you mean we're not going to destroy them anymore. We're not going to do that. Instead, there's restoration, renewal, provision, and invitation for all. <laughs> now, the story is not over. To be clear, this move towards restoration, renewal, and reconciliation does not resolve the issue or tension with what was of back then. It doesn't resolve that, right? Because it teaches us to see the expanding and maturing of the story of humanity in relationship with the divine. Jesus models growth and maturing or completing of an immature faith. 
which teaches us to simply quote a verse or a section of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and say, see, we can behave in this way. We can do these things because the Bible says so, would be to be immature, incomplete. Does the story stop there? So you go, yeah, but in the Old Testament, it says destroy them all so we can go out and destroy people because it says so. Is that where the story ends? No. That is a misuse, abuse, immature view, understanding, and actions of the scriptures. You have to ask the question, is that where the story ends? And in this, you go, no, not at all. It keeps going. It keeps unfolding. We need this so badly today. So, uh, this takes us to the beginning of the scripture in order to tie together some clouds. Now, where the movement began and how it's always been heading then. Genesis 1, 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 1, there is creating in the image of God all people. Then in Genesis 1, there is used seven times completion, again, the word tov in the Hebrew, it means good. This is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good on the seventh time, tov meod. Good meaning, tov means becoming, becoming more and agreeable. The divine created harmony, and that which he created was in harmony, in agreement with the divine and with one another. And this creation will continue becoming more. It's not finished, it's going to continue to become more. Of course we can take it off course. Of course we can go sideways. Of course we can mess it up, break it down. It's called sin. It's called selfishness. It's I'm going this way rather than harmony. But growing and expanding depth and agreement and harmony is the goal and is the point, is the purpose, and is the trajectory. Are you with me? The divine has infused all with the divine spark. That which is deepest within is divine essence. That which is deepest within all people is divine essence. It gets buried. It gets piled on top of with all kinds of manure that we would turn our manure into fertilizer. Now, the emphasis is on being created in the image of the divine, which is how we are to first and foremost see our neighbor, the other, the Canaanite. Oh, first and foremost, you are created in the image of the divine, so we will be held accountable for how we uphold and honor that understanding. Although created in the image of the divine, each person is shaped by specific perspectives, backgrounds, and cultures. So we begin by honoring the divine in each person, then, ready? Oh, I'm going to honor the fact that you are created in the image of the divine first and foremost. Then I'm going to learn who you are and how you are based on your perspectives, your culture, your background, because it's different than mine. So I have to learn that. Are you with me? Hooey. Yeah. So 
We begin by honoring the divine in them and the moving in that way, which the wisdom we learn from the desert fathers and mothers, they lived in the 4th century CE, common era, AD, however you, 4th century. This is what's great. These desert fathers and mothers came before all of our creeds and doctrines were assembled and organized. This wisdom comes before that. So what I'm doing is telling you that I'm terribly traditional. That's what we're saying here. We're going to be really traditional, more traditional than our creeds and doctrines. A people of simplicity, the desert fathers and mothers, yet offering profound wisdom. Uh, Let me tell you this story. One day, Abba Arsenius, one of the desert fathers, consulted an old Egyptian monk about his own thoughts. Someone noticed this and said to him, Abba Arsenius, how is it that you, with such a good Latin and Greek education, ask this peasant Egyptian about your thoughts? He replied, I have indeed been taught Latin and Greek, but I do not know even the alphabet of this peasant. Why am I talking to him is because he is different than, because he is different than me. His history and background and education in all its forms, I assume, will be a tremendous gift for century. The wisdom of, you're different than me? Oh, come here, friend. You got like a bow tie tied around your head. You are a gift. I bet I can learn immense amounts from you. I'm interested in your difference than me as a gift, as a learning. Are you with me? Another desert father offers a brilliant insight into the devastating consequences of living from a place of tribal differences from an immature worldview. Abba Anthony said, a time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, you are mad, you are not like us. Why, are you, why do I think you're mad? Because you're not like us. This is about setting aside the desire to be right and setting aside a desire to have our thoughts and feelings be the center in order for love to be our center. This is a death-to-life experience in the here and now. It carries a weight in the forever realm. I will die to the ego. I will die to my desire to just be right, to win, in order to learn and to grow. When in conversation, we learn to decouple our faith, that is our trust in God, from our thoughts about God. Are you with me? Did we have that? Good. That, that probably needs to tick around, because it did for me when it comes pouring out, and I'm like, hold on. It, it's that we understand, hey, in this conversation, I can take my trust in God and just go, I, it's different than, it can be different than my thoughts about God. So when you're saying something that you're, and I'm like, well, I'm listening. I trust you, God. I'm listening. I'm listening rather than getting hacked off and getting ready to say, you come on and no way. And didn't you see the news last night and my favorite person talking? I'll quote them without thinking. This way of faith doesn't rest on correct thinking. 
It moves the discussion away from a place of needing to be right. Rather, the conversation is grounded in love, which is to be our beginning and our end. Are you with me? Because I've heard people say time and again, oh, but I love everyone. Have you ever met wonderful people? And you say, oh, no, I love everyone, which I'm like, that's wonderful, but the universal needs the particular, so loving everyone begins with that person right in front of you. Let's just start there. I'm glad that you say you can love everyone. How about this person? How about the Canaanite woman? How we just, we'll start there. At the heart of the Christian faith is grace, gift. Will we operate from a place of grace? Will, we, will our posture towards others be one of gift? Might we approach conversations, how about some tools, how about some help here, by entering conversations by first asking this, what can I learn rather than how do I win this conversation? How do I win this debate, argument, or whatever? This isn't about winning, this is about learning and growing. So what can I learn here? What can I learn? Um, I'll go first. Uh, when in conversation, how many times I've caught myself not hearing what they're saying because I'm preparing what I want to say. I know, oh, they just said that one word that triggers for me. Oh, I got it. I'm going to get it. What'd you say? I, know, I hear something about Aunt Marcy. I didn't, sorry, but watch this. Oh, but I didn't hear you because I was dialing up what I wanted to say. Uh, another one, can we start with Questions of intrigue and curiosity rather than statements of defense. Fascinating. That's how you see things. How? I am so curious. How did you get there? H how did you make your way to this point? I, I'd really love to know. What steps? What? How, how long? Like, what, do you, what did you hear? What were you reading? What have you been reading? What did you watch? What is it that you experienced that led you to this place? I am fascinated by that. I'm very curious. I'm not defensive in saying you can't be that way. You can't do that. I don't care what your experiences are. I'm not interested in hearing that. I, how did you get there? It's super interesting to me. Interesting and intrigue would be good words rather than I'm offended, you and I. Maybe, right? Uh, a question to meditate on before entering into hot-button conversations of faith. Can we agree on Christ's body broken and blood poured for the healing of the world? Hey, I know we're going to get into some theological conversations. We're going to start chucking around some bible -y words and stuff. Uh, can we agree on, before we jump into this, Christ's body broken and blood poured for the healing of all? Like that's the whole thing. Can we at least, can we get up, before we jump into some of the minutiae, can we agree on that? Or maybe when the Christian faith is not agreed upon, how about this? Can we agree that the pattern of the universe is one of death to life? Uh, seeds to trees, caterpillar to butterfly, winter to spring, selfish consumption to communal flourishing. Can we agree that this is the way that literally everything moves in our world? That before there is life, there, there, that the more life comes out of death? Can we agree on that? Can we agree on that? Okay. Can we agree that the world needs healing? Can we just start there? Hey, we're going to get into some things. Can we agree the world needs healing? Can we agree that the world is dynamic and not static? So how we live matters. Can we agree on that? 
great, let's get into minutiae. I know you read some things and you're really excited to share it. I'm very interested in that. We've done so. Oh, great, great, good, good, good. We probably need some food and some drink, right? Because I think we're going to have ourselves quite a conversation. So let's get some food, because that's a good thing, by the way, when you're going to get into it. Food and sitting around a table, it's a really good place for that. There's something divine about a meal when we dig into conversation, debate, if you will, argument, if you want to call it that. But if we can begin from this place, oh, I think I'm going to learn something today. I think we're going to go after truth. That's, that's my goal. Right, let's go after the depth. Let's go after the more. So I'm going to listen really, really well. And, and then I'll invite in sharing. Do you see this massive, we just covered so much ground in the scriptures of Jesus moving from, I will provide for these people, but the people that has promised to, you've got it. And now we're going to the four corners of the earth and we're going to reach all people. We're going to invite all people to the table. We're going to give grace to all people. We're going to honor that megas faith of all people. You are wonderful. Let's do it. And we can argue. We can push. We can lean in because we're going after more and it's got to be invitation. It can't be sending away. That was an early immature way. We're not doing that. That was the beginning. It's not the ending. Now we can begin with what we have in common rather than where we are different. What do we have in common is what we're starting with in this conversation. And then we have intrigue and curiosity on where we are different. So we don't operate with the mindset of conquering and controlling others, but celebrating and submitting to the core of the common good. Our invitation is to live from a place of faith. Oh, Megas faith would be fantastic. We are invited to trust in and through Christ that the restoration and renewal and reconciliation is extended to all people and all of creation. It's a journey, it's a path, it's a walk, it's a struggle, it's ups, it's downs, it's not easy, and yet I trust that it is beautiful and life-giving and life to the full to dance in it, to be in it, and to posture our heart after the heart of Jesus. I want to create some space for us to reflect as we just sing one more time and to kind of gather ourselves to be in it, hopefully sit, to listen, to wonder, God, Holy One, what do you have for us? What are you up to? What are you doing? How are you nudging, needling, poking, inviting us forward and to grow to learn, to become the more that you have created us to be, that, that Jesus, that you have modeled for us, that you have shown us, that you have walked out, that you have taught us, and Holy Spirit, that which you are teaching us and inviting us into more and more and more. Holy One, that you would help us keep our hearts pliable, open, flexible, 
absorbent to what you have for us. And we trust that you can do so much more than our brains, our minds can fathom. God, I've watched you and I've experienced you do so much more. I bless you for that. We bless you for the provision that you give to all of us. And we ask that you begin the more on the other side of that. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.